This is the Plucked Chicken Podcast. Well, all right, here we are again at the Pastor's Roundtable, and this time we're, we've worked our way through the prologue of John, and we're picking it up still in chapter 1, but at verse 19. Why don't we have one of us read it, and I think uh, there are some discrete chunks here that are ways in which we can divide it up. What if we had uh, Pastor Oakry read 19 through 28? And this is the testimony of John. When the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, Who are you? He confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. And they asked him, What then? Are you Elijah? He said, I am not. Are you the prophet? And he answered, No. So they said to him, Who are you? We need to give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? He said, I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. Now, they had been sent from the Pharisees. They asked him, Then why are you baptizing, if you are neither the Christ, nor Elijah, nor the prophet? John answered them, I baptize with water, but among you stands one you do not know, even he who comes after me, the straps of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. These things took place in Bethany, across the Jordan, where John was baptizing. Uh, We've already talked about the way in which the Greek text actually interrupts all of those ego eimi statements that become so prominent later on, the I am statements. Uh, We have ouk, the word not, intervening uh, and breaking up that phrase. So um, one of the really neat things about John's uh, denial slash confession is that he uses the very things that uh, could be tagged to him as claiming I am God and interrupts them, breaks them up. Perspective is sort of interesting here too in in the gospel according to St. John. John, as the maverick, uh, he's often called the maverick gospel or the maverick gospel writer, sees, uh, when we talk about the gospels, we talk about synoptic gospels uh, that see together. Those are Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And then we talk about John as the the maverick gospel. He sees differently. Uh, He gives uh, fundamentally, in many cases, different episodes. Uh, The discourse of Jesus that's recorded here is is almost um, unrepresented entirely in the synoptic gospels. Uh, and so it's very clear that he he comes to the to the life of Jesus with a with a different uh, perspective. Well, one of the things that Pastor Oakery pointed out last time is that we don't know where um, the quote marks should always begin and end. And it's really interesting. We bump into one here uh, in verse twenty three, don't we? Um, where it says clearly that John said, I am a voice of one calling in the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord. Then the question is, does the quote mark of what John himself said, John the baptizer said, end right there? Or does John himself say, as Isaiah the prophet said? Right. Is that a parenthetical from from John the author? From the author. Yeah. yeah. Uh, that's a good point. Well, plus, here we have an I am statement, but that, that's a genomai. He said, I am the voice. Oh, there's there's no... What's interesting is it's just ego phone. It's not ego emi okay. phone. So okay. I... Literally what it says is I, a voice of one crying. Good. That's excellent. Even though most people understand 
you know, when he says, I'm not, Eli- I'm not Elijah, they probably don't understand when he says, I'm not the prophet with a capital P. This takes us back to the days of Moses, where Moses says, there will one day come a prophet, capital P. So here you've got however many eons later, and they're asking John if he's the guy that Moses actually said would come. Right. And then John the Baptist was cognizant of what Moses said and the prophecy therein. And he's like, no, I'm, I'm not that guy. That's a fascinating thing to me, that that, that tidbit of information, it's almost like the Magi, that they're, tra- they're told by, by Daniel of old, and then however many years later, they're still watching, they're looking, they, they believe the Word of God, that, this is, that the Messiah is going to come out of, out of uh, Jerusalem. Right. This is a time of messianic expectancy, which is important because like the modern uh, Jewish person, for the most part, is completely devoid of messianic expectancy. Right, just very few, a few sects of the sure. Hasidim. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. and and I think it is fascinating that that this person is out here, and there's something, there's obviously something about them, and they come to ask the question. Um, you know, the interesting thing to me is, do these three ideas—the Christ, the Prophet, and uh, Elijah—do they have any real difference in meaning? To the, to the people asking the question and even for us today. Because we would say, well, maybe with the exception of Elijah, which is a little bit interesting, uh, certainly the prophet and the Christ, those are embodied in Jesus. Right. But Elijah's one who never died. He never died. Well, and even more, Christ says, despite John's refusal, that he is, in fact, Elijah. He, right. He, he is the Elijah who was to come, is what Jesus says. Yeah. yeah. So he doesn't say that he's Elijah, but right. he says he's the one. So when, based upon this belief that Elijah was going to return before the time of the Christ, he is the Elijah that, that the, was prophesied, not, not the Elijah. Almost more of an office or a title than the person who it obviously could not be. Correct. Right. And so what... You know, the question then is, what is this title of Elijah mean? Well, we actually get the answer here, right? He's the one who declares and makes the straight pass and bears witness to the coming of the prophet, the coming of the Christ. Right, which is what we had been introduced to in the in the prologue. Exactly. Right? That John uh, was not the light, but he came to bear witness about the light. And is that yeah. verse 5 of the prologue? Yeah. Um Another interesting thing to, to just draw attention to here is, is the way in which the Pharisees feature uh, in this particular passage. So we find out that uh, the people that were sent out from Jerusalem were priests and Levites. And if you look, uh, that's verse 19. If you look in verse 24, it says they had been sent out from among the Pharisees. Now, uh, understanding the difference between Pharisaic Judaism and Sadducee Judaism is very is very important for understanding anything in the life of of, of Jesus. So Pharisaic Judaism regarded the entire canon of the Old Testament, what we recognize as the canon of the Old Testament, as being canonical. And so it's very interesting to me that the questions they ask, right, 
they, they start actually, are you Elijah? Is he in the five books of Moses? No, he's not. Then are you, um, excuse me, are you the Christ is where they start, right? Okay, so this is definitely prophetic material. Mm. Then they go to, are you Elijah? Uh, Elijah actually fits in the history of Israel in the writings. And then they go to the heart of the canon. Uh, are you the prophet that Moses talked about? Which, by the way, if anybody wants to look that up, that's Deuteronomy 18.18. 18. And, and it helps us understand his answer, too, because he quotes from Isaiah to give answer to the question as well. And that's satisfactory for a Pharisee. It would not be satisfactory for someone who was aligned with the Sadducees. Correct. You would think that the Pharisees would be very interested in John the Baptist. The Sadducees seem so laid back, so non-interested. It seems like they don't really even start getting involved until... A little bit later, especially in Jesus's ministry, after it after it starts to gain steam, is that fair? I, I totally think so. And they, you know, they were. What's interesting to me is that we have this this note notice that it's priests and Levites. These particular priests and Levites are of the sect of the Pharisees. That's what John is saying. The Sadducees don't really care. Now they're they're focused on the temple. They don't really care. They're more of an elite group. Totally, they're, they're not connected to the to the blue collar guy, and they're not particularly messianic in their thinking either. They're totally not messianic right. because they deny they deny all the canon except for the first five books of Moses. They don't regard anything coming later as as having any valence whatsoever. They don't believe in angels. They don't believe in a resurrection of the dead. Right, and so that's that's another very important thing to draw attention to. They're like college professors, right? Or or they're or they're like mainline Christians. Oh, even worse of today. So the Pharisees are like the Lutherans, the Missouri Synod Lutherans, and the the other guys are are like the mainline Christians. They kind of demythologize. Yeah. Everything from the scriptures. So a, a liberal Methodist church. Exactly. And they're looking for nothing, which is just in line with that. I mean, that's why Jesus doesn't particularly interest them until he starts thumbing them in the eye a little bit where we're in the pocketbook. <laughs> Thre- threatening the livelihood. Yeah. yeah. Uh, the temple. Yeah. Right. Which exactly. is, yeah. Then we get John talking about baptism. So let's talk about the baptism of John. Um, this is a dogmatic, a dogmatic issue in the Evangelical Lutheran Church. Was the baptism of John a saving baptism or not? Peeper is always interesting on this. Of course, the first thing he points out is that for us, it is an entirely academic issue because there's no baptism of John anymore, which is worth pointing out. Um, of course, it wouldn't have been academic for the early church. And uh, he holds that because there is... Uh, salvation found in it that it was it was it was true baptism uh the the division between the baptism of john and the baptism of jesus uh isn't to say that the ones baptized by john had to be re-baptized in fact they almost certainly weren't um but that uh it was it was um just a matter of the timing one came before Jesus' proclamation of baptism, and one right. came after. Where is the passage where John says, "Who told you you could flee the impending doom?" Yeah, to the Pharisees when he was baptizing. Where where is that? Uh, look at Luke three three. Right. So it says that it's for the forgiveness of sins. Right. Yeah. So is that not right. answer the question? Right. 
Right. Well, it, it is a saving baptism, right? Um, and you, you said, you know, it's just merely an academic point, but in, in Acts chapter 19, uh, Paul stumbles upon these believers in Ephesus, and he, he asks if they'd received the Holy Spirit, and they said, we don't even know if there's a Holy Spirit, and they'd only received the baptism of John. Which and, was the forgiveness of their sins, right? But, based upon just that one reading. Right. However. But, but it goes on, and it says that he baptized them in the name of the Lord Jesus, and then laid hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. Right. So I think it kind of touches on what we talked about last time. Clearly, there is a fullness that is being missed out on. You know, we talk about in Lutheran circles to, to folks that from the Acts 2 passage, uh, you know, baptism is like a two sides of the same coin. You receive the forgiveness of your sins and the gift of the Holy Spirit. Good. I, I like what you're saying. And actually, the Lord Jesus does not institute the sacrament of baptism until he has died and risen again. That's when he institutes it in Matthew 28, right? Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations by baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. But your question earlier was what? Was John's baptism salvific? Was it the same as salvation in the name of Jesus? Right. Which is no, slightly... it's clearly not. But it still bestowed benefit. It still was a sacrament. Here's what's starting to come clear to me, right? We've got this really interesting statement in the in the prologue, right? Uh, from his fullness, now I'm picking up on what you said, from his fullness, we have received even grace in the place of a grace. Okay, so John comes on as kind of like the last of the Old Testament prophets. prophets and he's got a sacrament, and it's the sacrament of baptism. What did the blood of all those lambs connect the Israelites to? It connected them to the death of and resurrection of Jesus, and it forgave their sins. What does John's baptism do? It connects the people to the, to the death and resurrection of this coming Messiah, right? But he's not there yet. And so Jesus reinstitutes, uh, based upon his once-for-all sacrifice for sins, reinstitutes the same sacrament that John himself was using. I, I want us to talk about that because the the people that come to John from the Pharisees have this question. Why are you baptizing if you are not uh, the person? And uh, to me, it's an open question because baptism, there is there are certain ritual washings connected to the temple worship. But what? how does baptism all of a sudden just kind of like out of the blue really here uh, become a thing? That obviously, culturally, they all understand, but they also have obviously put parameters around because they're not entirely comfortable with a person baptizing just willy-nilly. There has to be some authority behind it. So where's that understanding coming from? Well, wouldn't you say that authority would come from the Essene community that John was involved with that made uh, ritual cleansing um, just a constant practice? Yeah, you know, well... I if this is a if this is a salvific sin forgiving baptism, it doesn't come from the Essene community. It right. comes from God. It has to come from God. But right? the Essenes clearly practice something like this. And from what I've understood, almost like a daily ritualistic cleansing. And I can't speak about the Essene community. Uh, there's a, an author by the name of Joachim 
Jeremias. It looks like Joachim Jeremias. Um, and he writes extensively on this stuff. In Diaspora Judaism, you, you have the problem of children born to Jewish mothers, children born to proselytes, uh, all these other sorts of things. And baptism, uh, and, and for this, they would point to um, some passages in Isaiah, uh, as well as passages in uh, they would actually point to the to the Exodus, to the to the dead to, to the crossing of, of the Red Sea, and say the Lord instituted this washing for these people, and they were baptizing them. <laughs> this is really detailed. I don't have all the details in my head. I think they had to be baptized before they were circumcised. Okay, that's what I'm saying. Like the seventh day they were baptized, eighth day they were circumcised. Whatever the case might be. Interestingly, Paul talks about the Israelites being baptized into Moses in the cloud, doesn't he, in 1 Corinthians. So there, there is a recognition that even in the Old Testament, a baptism was taught. Whether that's the institution that we can point to for John's baptism or not, I don't know. Well, Luther would, right, in his baptismal prayer, he would gather that language up to help inform what baptism is, which I think is intriguing. It's just very interesting to me that all of a sudden now, baptism, this washing, which is clearly not just, hey, I'm taking a bath, because the the agents of the Pharisees are being very particular. By what authority are you doing these things? How can you do them if you are not if you are not these cat these people that we are questioning you about? which I think is fascinating. It's, it's not just like any person could go and say, hey, we're doing baptism. It's uh, it obviously, and, and, and obviously the, the Pharisees had some understanding of it. It wasn't just the Essene communities. They said there has to be a, an authority in order to do it. And of course, he's in the office of the prophet and he, does, he gives his authority. He's, I'm, I'm this figure talked about in Isaiah. I think what we can say is, it's a bit mysterious. We don't have a formal place in Scripture where God says a washing of repentance and forgiveness is going to happen. Don't let that hang you up too much. Uh, I also think about in Genesis, how, how amazing is it? God never said, make sacrifices to me, to Adam and Eve or Cain and Abel. But what did they do? They made sacrifices to him and he accepted them. And that's important for us to understand. There's sometimes there's details behind the scenes that we're just not entirely told. So, so you're saying that it's, it's absent from the narrative. It, uh, an actual institution is absent from the narrative, but just because it's absent from the narrative that we have doesn't mean it, it's not a historical reality. Exactly. And I think if you look at it in the same light as the sacrifices made before God instituted formal sacrifices, it's, it's in the same light. Moses is relating a sacrificial system that doesn't apply to them anymore because they now have a better sacrificial system. It's a fuller sacrificial system. So the details of that sacrificial system don't even really entirely matter to him because it has passed away. And I think you can look at John's baptism in the same light. Its institution, its its full practice, its full authority is, is not as important because we now have the fuller authority of Jesus saying, go baptizing and, and teaching. And so we're gonna we're gonna hang our hat on this. We're not gonna make we're not gonna waste time 
talking about a thing that doesn't apply to us anymore. Good. So shall I pick up with verse 29? Let's. The next day he saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, After me comes a man who ranks before me, because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but for this purpose I came baptizing with water, that he might be revealed to Israel. And John bore witness, I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, He on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and I have borne witness that this is the Son of God. So right out the gate we have behold, which is bringing us into the that witnessing language of the prologue. Uh, John is not talking about things that are unseen. He's literally pointing his finger at Jesus and saying, there he is, physically visible to us. And of course, he himself says, I saw. And, and this, I think it's very important for people reading through John to understand the power and importance of the witness. And it's going to come up in the language of the text. Again and again, again and again. again. Yeah. yeah, right. Even at the very end of the gospel. But it is fascinating because what he sees is something that's impossible to see. He doesn't say, behold, my cousin. <laughs> he says, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And so he is seeing here the a physical reality, but he's also seeing beyond it with the eyes of faith. And this is what verse 31, I think, is getting at. When John says, I myself did not know him. Well, of course he knew him as his cousin. He grew up with him. But what you're pointing out is he sees beyond the earthly, and he is seeing him as the Son of God who came to take away the sin of the world. In Jesus' baptism. And so we have to understand Jesus' baptism as a revelatory. I mean, there's lots of things that Jesus' baptism is, but one of them is this kind of lightning bolt moment for that initial group of disciples to say, this is the guy. And they could not have seen it before that point. Well, I mean, that comment reminds me of the uh, disciples on the road to Emmaus. That was revelatory as well in the breaking of the bread. So here we have two sacraments revealing Christ to us, which is powerful and important. I mean, we we cannot dismiss that. Not at all. And Pastor Kearns, you, you, you make the really good point that it's that what John sees at this point is that he is God's son, is that Christ is God's son. And this is a central contention. Today, we don't take that very seriously in the sense that the confession of Jesus as the son of God is not, it's kind of like, eh, you know, whatever. But it is the central point of the gospel according to St. John. These things are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. What? No life change? These things <laughs> are that, written for life change? No. And that by believing, you may have life in his name. So this, this fundamental proclamation that he's God's Son is critical in the early church. Isn't the Bible basic instructions before leaving earth? <laughs> well, Isn't that what it means? But I think it is significant. There is a life change, right? We have life in his name. But what modern Christianity does is it focuses on the result for me instead of recognizing who Jesus is. Okay, I, I, I can appreciate that. I, the result does matter. 
But you can't read the Gospels and see how much ink they spill trying to establish who Jesus is and act like that's a that's a non-important thing. Script, for Scripture, it is fundamentally important. And, and even to the point where when we confess Jesus, we primarily confess who he is. And Jesus Christ is only son, our Lord. Yeah. Right. And, yeah. And, and then his, and even his actions themselves don't give, but give us the benefit. In fact, the benefits are laid out with the Holy Spirit who brings the truth of Christ upon us, which I think is utterly fascinating. And I think that we are not doing our job as pastors if we just preach a results-oriented Christianity. We have to preach an identity-based Christianity, an identity based on who Christ is and then who we are in connect, in conjunction with him. And, and the consequences of that fall out as a result of that. The other thing that the evangelical, unfortunately, hears quite a lot of is this two-tiered salvation where you've made Jesus your Savior. Now you need to make him your Lord. As if there were a difference between Lord and Savior. Correct. Yeah. I mean, it's called Lordship Salvation. Right. So they, they uh, a Lutheran hears Lord and Savior Jesus Christ as, a, as what we would call a hendiades, right? One and the same thing. And Luther even explains it that way, doesn't he? Uh, I believe that Jesus Christ, true God, begotten of the Father from eternity, and also true man, born of the Virgin Mary, is my Lord. Now he glosses what it means to have a Lord by saying this, who has redeemed me, a lost and condemned person, purchased and won me from all sins, from death, and from the power of the devil. So yeah, that's a, that's a really, really good point. And, and it's interesting that, that John doesn't proclaim him first as Lord, as if there's some distinction here. He claims him first as God's son, and he looks to his office immediately, right? Behold the Lamb of God. Okay, great. John, what Lamb of God? What does he do who takes away the sin of the world? So you have this sin, the the connection of Jesus' sonship to the Father with the forgiveness of sins is critical. There is no forgiveness in one who is not God's son. Speaking of forgiveness, in this last verse of this uh, section that we just read, now you see the fullness of baptism, that it does not or it is not going to just give the forgiveness of sins, but the Holy Spirit is going to accompany that. Yes, absolutely. And there's something else going on with with the presence of the Holy Spirit here. Whenever there is a shift, a prophetic shift in the Old Testament, so there's an anointing that takes place, number one. And number two, there is a, a bestowal of the Holy Spirit. This happens with Elijah and Elisha. It happens with Moses and uh, Joshua. Uh, you see it all over the place. And so this presence of the Holy Spirit, I mean, if John knows, look, I'm supposed to be the dude who's going to come before the Messiah, and then the Holy Spirit shows up, he's like, okay, job done. I've done, I've done what I needed to do. My successor is here. Which is why he can say, may he increase and I decrease a little bit later on. Sure. Yeah, yeah. and in fact, why, why he fades into the background other than the, his ultimate fate uh, being, being a critical thing. But his ministry fades, even to the point where, you know, you, you could say, is John any longer, once Jesus comes, is, does he stop being a baptizer? And I, I wonder if he does. Uh, it's it's an uncertain. I mean, it's not entirely certain in the text, but it would it would make sense in the context. But we we have two identities given for for Jesus here, right? He's bearing witness to to 
to two things. The ultimate thing he says, which is critical, is this is the son of God. And that is the the fundamental identity that matters. And it's his, Jesus's eternal identity, right? It's the identity that he's always the son of the father. He's eternally begotten. But then before that, which of course we sink our teeth into is a little bit more, is behold the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And so now we have this lamb and this is, that is purposeful, right? It's not just he's the son of God come down to be like, look, I'm big and powerful and bow down before me. He has a purpose and it's to take away the sin of the world. And that is embodied in the picture of, of the lamb. My question here is, what is that language? The lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. It was always interesting to me. Uh, there was that video with Will Whedon where, uh, he had a person who wasn't Lutheran come in and he was shocked at how many lambs there were in the church. And for us, that idea, that wounded lamb with the banner of victory mm-hmm. um, is kind of everywhere. And it is one of the primary go-to images for us. And so, but obviously not for all, all of Christianity, which is mind blowing. But when he was saying that to the people around him, what did that mean to them? What does the image of the lamb slain for the sin of the world mean? Well, very obviously, within the context of the gospel, according to St. John, John here, when he says the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, is already looking forward to the crucifixion and death of the Lord Jesus Christ, which occurs over the Passover. And we're going to find, we're going we're gonna to get swept right into the Passover here really quickly. Mm-hmm. So that's point number one. Point number two is that, is this business that we have seen his glory, right? Glory is of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. And so we go right into that glory right here. What do we have? We got some little Jewish schmuck showing up to get baptized by this weird prophet in the wilderness who is the Son of God and who is bearing the sins of the world. To understand the glory of Christ in any other terms than his self-donation, his self-sacrificial being is to entirely miss the point. But wouldn't you say as well that with the introduction of Jesus walking to this to this river, this is on the verge of an entire change in not just Judaism, but the salvation of the world. I mean, this is going to put an end to an entire sacrificial system that God set up to think that devout Jews in pious families, have grown up selecting a lamb every year. And now, behold, this one is the lamb. This one changes everything. Now, clearly, there will still be Jews that uh, that don't observe this and keep on doing what they always have been doing to please God. But again, this is why the Lord breaks the curtain or tears the, the temple uh, curtain into to say this system is done with. And there were, believe me, there were little uh, Jews to go up and uh, sew the curtain back up and keep on. And this is why the Lord has, what, the Romans come in and destroy, the, destroy it all together. And it's still, it's still demolished. Yeah, even in spite of their best attempts. Look at where this takes place, where John was baptizing. Where was he baptizing? Be, side, beyond the yeah. Jordan, and I wanted to talk about yeah. this. This connects exactly with what you're talking about, right? This is this is the re 
crossing of the Jordan, if you right. will. Well, and it's also, uh, in a way, then a recapitulation of Elijah and Elisha, yes. because all of all of that happened beyond the Jordan too, and and it's fascinating to me that these powerful things happen outside of the clearest border of the promised land. I, I don't know where the promised land ends to the north or to the south necessarily. I know where it ends to the east and west. And to do it beyond the Jordan is actually very significant. In, in the same way that Elijah crossing the Jordan and re- and reversing the crossing of the Jordan by making the waters pile up mm. even. It's really intriguing that what we're... And, and what we have to be being taught here is that the promised land is not the place. It's the place where God has gathered his people of promise, but the promise isn't meant to be contained in that land, right? It's supposed to go to the farthest reaches of the earth. Let's talk a little bit about Lutheran liturgy here, shall we? Uh, I mean, we'd be remiss in doing that. Um, For Lutherans who have been singing this for years and years and years, uh, it's probably going in kind of one ear and out the other, right? After, or even saying, why do we say, why do we why, say this so many times? Why do we times? do this? Yeah. So after the consecration, uh, where the Lord joins his word to the bread and, and to the wine and says, this is my body, this is my blood, Christ himself is present on the altar. And God's people, in response to this reality in front of them, break out into song using the same exact words that St. John used here, uh, St. John the Baptist at the Jordan, Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, have mercy upon us. That is a just a wonderful, beautiful confession that our eyes see as clearly as St. John did, the Baptist, that this is the Son of God who saves us from our sin. Well, and with that, I uh, heard Vic say something on one of the podcasts not too terribly long ago. We were talking about making disciples and how you do that uh, by baptizing and teaching. And then he mentioned how, lo, I am with you always as a meaning to what you just said, that on the table, it's a sacramental, uh, it's a nod to the... Sacramental presence. Yeah. 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 I am with you always, even to the end of the age. And this is where this is where I am. That's great, yeah. yeah. And so much better than the kind of classic evangelical, yeah, I'm playing soccer, but here's ghosty Jesus right. beside me. Right, right. Oh, I'm, I'm, I'm going and buying groceries, but here's ghosty Jesus beside me. No, he's located in this place that your life revolves around, and, and his presence. And that's predicated, I mean, that, that hangs off of the statement, teaching them to observe, to observe all things yeah. whatsoever I have yeah. commanded you. What's the last commandment that the Lord Jesus gives his disciples is... Take, Take eat. eat, do this. Yeah. Now, I do want to go back to the lamb that takes away the sin of the world because we made the Passover connection. I believe it, and that's true. But the Passover lamb is not a sin sacrifice lamb. It's a deliverance lamb. Now, we're not going to pit those things against each other. They're all part of the same package. But we can't just say that this is, he's talking about just the Passover lamb. He's also talking about the sacrifice on the Day of Atonement. Right? I mean, that's the sin sacrifice. That's the atoning sacrifice. That's the scapegoat. Well, the scapegoat, but don't they make a sacrifice? Oh, and, yes, they and do. With the blood yeah. and, yep. and yep. all of that. And so, yeah. And There's two together. There are two together. Yeah. One, one gets released as the scapegoat, yep. and the other one gets, gets sacrificed. sacrificed. And that's yeah. And, 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 yeah. And, and what my whole point here is that the Passover imagery is undeniable and extremely important in John, but he's not excluding that Passover from the greater scope of the sacrificial system. Jesus is 
the fulfillment and totality of that sacrificial system. And he's that language of behold, the lamb of God uh, brings all of that to bear. Yes. And in our true captor, you know, I mean, you're right. Uh, the, the, the Passover lamb is a, is a lamb of deliverance. There's no question, but that foreshadows, obviously it foreshadows the redemption in Christ uh, and gives the redemption in Christ. But it also proclaims that your true captor is not Pharaoh. Pharaoh is your yeah. sins and the devil and death and hell. Yeah, there's there's a greater there's a greater captivity uh, upon us that in Christ is the true, and that's why he is the new Moses, the greater prophet, because he's not leading us out of captivity some to some petty king somewhere. He's leading us out of captivity to the things that truly and eternally matter. You know, John eight. I mean, just speaking of deliverance. Um, if you remain in my word, you are my disciples indeed, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set, set you free. free. Yeah. Right? yeah, yeah. And and immediately, his audience says, "We've never been in captivity." I, I mean, if you knew any Jewish history, you'd know that that was that is the most alert, insane right response. But but it is kind of an idea that Jewish people had developed. Like even even in Egypt, even in Babylon, we still had our God. And he made us free, which, and God was like, no, I mean, I literally told you, you were captives. I mean, it's kind of, it's, it, what's the same mental gymnastics that we can do about our own lives today, right? And we can say things authoritatively that when you think about our history, just don't make a ton of sense. Right, right. But doesn't this as well, and, and I want to get to the other image of the dove here in just a second, but just to tag on what Pastor Oakry saying. I was reminded as he was talking of Psalm 118, verse 27, uh, where the people are entering up into the Passover celebration. They're singing these uh, psalms of ascent, and they say, The Lord is God, and he has made his light to shine upon us. Bind the festal sacrifice with cords, which is the lamb, up to the horns of the altar. That just blows me away how here's this psalm that was written decades before these folks. Yeah, Yeah. before these folks uh, show up here for the Passover. They're they're saying these things about Jesus, and at the same time, they are acknowledging what John the Baptist acknowledged. And they, they don't probably realize it to the degree that John believed it or saw it. Does that make sense? Right, totally. Yeah, but but John, but John, now John is putting in clear words what they should be seeing, right? right? And and so we need to understand that too. John is putting in clear words what today's reader of John should be seeing. Jesus is the Lamb of God who bears us in the world. Now, I just want to just make a quick comment. This has been a, a really wonderful thing where you guys have pulled in the scapegoat, you've pulled in the the uh, the Psalms of Ascent, we've pulled in the the Passover, we've pulled in the crossing of the Jordan, Elijah and Elisha. This is the imagery, or the, this is the richness of the gospel according to St. John. We said earlier, right, it's, it's shallow enough for a child to wade into safely, but deep enough for an elephant to drown in, and we're starting to drown. And that's really the joy of reading John. Uh, speaking of, of drowning, uh, you've got in verse 32 this other image of another animal, which is that of the dove. I find it just beautiful that Noah, after the world has been drowned, i.e. baptism, and you've got this new creation, 
Noah sends out various birds over time, and the last one he sends out is this dove, and that dove never returns. And then I'll be doggone if that dove doesn't come and land on our Lord when he's baptized. And remain. Which I think is a really interesting point that John stresses that I don't think the other gospel stretches much. The remaining of the Spirit on Jesus. Which I was going to ask you in the Greek, that word remaining, because in the other telling of it, I want to say that the Greek communicates that the Holy Spirit uh, went in him, not on him like, uh, you know, what? Who, who, a P, yeah, like a pawn, but into. Right. So so this is what the Greek says here, and, and it's even more... Uh, it's even more pointed uh, than the, the translation uh, gives. This is my translation. And John witnessed saying that I have seen the Spirit descending as a dove from heaven, and it remained upon him. Not and remaining upon him, but and it remained upon him. That's now, what we have. Oh, you do? I thought you said and remaining upon him. And it remained oh, on perfect. him. Okay, perfect. All right, good. Okay, that's excellent. On him. Okay. I was just hearing other but, things. But then later on it does say, he on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, right? And so, but it's, it's the remaining of the Spirit is significant. And, and it's significant for us too because our baptism, the Spirit comes and remains. Uh, it always reminds me of a story I heard you know, up in, up in Atchison. Uh, we had some kids in the, going to the school who weren't uh, Lutheran, and one of them said, oh, pastor, at my church... Uh, this one girl gets baptized every single Sunday. I said, oh, why, why is that? Well, her mom makes her go up because during the week she's disobeyed her. And so uh, obviously it didn't stick, right? The spirit came, but then it went away because she was wicked, right? And I said, wow, what a... You, you take these as moments to teach. You say, that's a really tough way to understand God. If he's just coming and going like willy-nilly... And anytime I sin, I drive the Spirit away. Honestly, every time I sin, the Spirit's there dragging me to Christ and His forgiveness, not running away from me like, oh, I can't stay here. This place is too awful. No, we're awful. Except that we've been redeemed in Christ and we are perfect. And that dual reality is lays upon us. And the remaining of the Spirit is why we have one baptism um, and, and hold to that. That is excellent. That's really excellent. You know, another place where... Uh, this, where doves uh, come up is in the Mosaic law regarding the redemption of the firstborn doves. Which is exactly what Jesus' earthly parents uh, used until they got that huge sum of gold. And then it was like, we can sacrifice a bull if you mean we that, want to. Right, exactly. When Jesus uh, taught them the prosperity gospel right. yeah, and <laughs> taught them how to how to improve their lives, live their best life today. Yeah. Yeah. I don't think they were doing that living in Nazareth of all places, right? No. <laughs> yeah, they were out in the boonies, out in the sticks, just kind of scraping by. Carbondale, Kansas. Yeah. Of course, the, the one parallel here is one that pops up in other places is, uh, wh- what do we make of this distinction between baptizing with water and baptizing with the Spirit? What do we make of it? Well, he makes a clear distinction. I am the one who baptizes with water. And then he says, Jesus is the one who baptizes by the Spirit. I mean, that's there's a lot of Pentecostal theology built on this, and frankly, even evangelical and Baptist theology, right? You don't water baptism isn't the thing. 
spirit baptism is the thing, whatever that is. And I see, I see. I think what John is doing is saying that that there is a that there with Christ there is a spirit and water baptism. It's very clear that this is exactly how this was understood on the day of Pentecost. Well, and it's what's told to Nicodemus explicitly. Right, exactly. Yeah. Yep. But I would say we were talking about the dearth of uh, images in most uh, evangelical churches. Uh, in the Pentecostal church, you will see the dove. But that dove has nothing to do with, um, with water baptism. That dove has to do with the Spirit descending at Pentecost. Right, and, but, but and it, giving other utterances to the apostles, and it is very difficult to deny. Like Jesus, we just got done learning that the Spirit came upon Jesus in His baptism, and then all of a sudden we're going to be here trying to separate water baptism from from the Spirit descending. It's it's preposterous, even in the language of the text. And of course, we have another problem. He says Jesus baptizes with the Spirit, and yet we are told explicitly, Jesus never himself baptized and you, you you start to understand the wonder of that because if jesus had baptized anybody how crazy could it have gotten well you were baptized but i was baptized by jesus well that actually happens without jesus right exactly. i was baptized by paul you apollos exactly yeah Oh, that's why uh, I heard somebody say, if we ever got a physical characteristic of Jesus in that, let's just say he had a, you know, I don't know, buck teeth, okay? Uh, or, or maybe a gap, a gap between his teeth. There would be shops all over the world that would help make a gap in your teeth uh, so that you could be like Jesus. Because if your teeth are uh, close, together. Cl- close together, then... Yeah. Mm, put uh, orthodontists in a different kind of business, right? right. Well, um, the, the appearance of the Spirit here gets rounded out in the Gospel according to St. John um, in the 20th chapter when Jesus comes in among the disciples on the night of his resurrection, breathes on them the Holy Spirit and says, Receive the Holy Spirit. Whosoever sins you forgive, they have been forgiven them. And whosoever sins you retain, they have been retained. And here... John is connecting that forgiveness and retention of sins actually to the sacrament of baptism. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Here he's baptized, and and now he, yeah, so he baptizes with the Holy Spirit in this sense, right, that he does it through his mystical body, the church. When I first started listening to Lutherans preach and hear every one of them some way, somehow, tie everything back to baptism. I mean, this is just something you don't do in the evangelical preaching world, unless you're preaching specifically on baptism, which, as we have noted many times here on the, the, the podcast, that it's, it's always wrong. That blew me away. Why do they always do this? And then you start to realize, oh, I get it. It's because baptism is that big of a deal. Yeah. It's our ground of being. And because how, it because it makes Christ our ground of being. Right. And, and right. how do you know that you're saved? What's the answer? I'm baptized. <laughs> right. Yeah. An evangelical yeah. would never say that. Right. Because of what they've been taught, that it is uh, just, uh, as you said earlier, Pastor Bruss, just telling the world that I'm on Team Jesus and wearing that jersey. When I was uh, colloquized in the Missouri Synod in 2006 in the um, Mid-South District, uh, I went to... 
Tennessee uh, to um, Memphis and sat through my colloquy interview. And there was a kindergarten or preschool teacher in there on the colloquy committee. And she asked me the question. I, I think she thought I was an egghead. Asked me the question. So you're sitting with a bunch of little kids. And, and one of them says, uh, Pastor, how do I know I'm, I'm going to heaven? How would you answer? And I said, I would answer because you're baptized. And she said, no, 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 no. They, won't, they will never understand that. You, you tell them that Jesus lives in their heart. I thought, what a shame. I mean, I, I was shocked and floored that a Lutheran school teacher would even think, you know, think like this. But your, your point here is really, is really, really important about, about the gifts that are given objectively in baptism. As little as you can unbaptize yourself, that's as little as God's bestowal of the gifts has gone away. They are there for you. And you can always come crawling back to your baptism. I think it's very interesting in John that Jesus' baptism is uh, this objective proof itself as well. I think sometimes we get in our head, well, it's Jesus doing all the miracles that proved he was God. Well, prophets do miracles. I mean, you, you can't definitively say that. But John is saying, no, the Spirit came upon him and remained upon him. His baptism is objectively how I know not only that he's the Lamb of God, but that he is the Son of God. And that objective truth in Christ is also our objective truth. How do you know that you're a child of God? I am baptized. And to, you know, obsess about the fruits is like obsessing about Jesus' miracles. I mean, you tell me that when Jesus wasn't doing miracles, he wasn't the Son of God, because that's sometimes how we treat ourselves as Christians. And uh, may it not be. May we understand ourselves grounded in that baptismal reality. Well, on top of that, it, what a comfort. You know, I think about the story you just told of the, the mother that wanted her daughter to get baptized every week. You know, the mother could easily look at the daughter and say, the reason that you've sinned this week is because Jesus is, as you said, vacated. He's not in your heart anymore. And instead of looking at concretely, objectively, this is the gift that's been given to you in your baptism. Uh, man, what a, what a terrible... And, and it's even for evangelicals today. They probably don't get baptized every week, mind you. But it's a, it's a very common thing to see people in our adult catechesis classes that we've learned were raised in a different uh, heritage. Then they went off to college, so, and they were baptized in that heritage. And then they went off to college somewhere, got involved in these uh, groups in college, and told them, oh, you were baptized as a baby? That doesn't count. you got to get baptized again because now you really mean it. They get baptized again. They might get baptized again once they uh, get married and have a child. And then I'll be doggone. They come to us, and they realize, oh, my goodness, what a load of hooey. I had it all along. Right. Right. Right, but sometimes they come to us and they're still struggling with it. Oh, indeed. Because now I found the real goods, so now I want to be, now I super duper mean it, and, <laughs> and I am ready, because now I know Lutheran theology, and, and, I, and I, all I say to them is, your baptism is as good as your day of birth, and you can't live your life thinking that it's your understanding of baptism that makes baptism work. Right. Because you'll understand it today. But a day may come when you don't understand it. And what a comfort that is. You know, we, we obsess about the babies. I always like to use the counterpoint of the old person comatose in their bed. Does their baptism not count because they, they can't articulate it? They, I mean, their brains are mush. You know, they don't, they don't understand it at all. It's still theirs. And that's the beauty of it. 
is that it sustains us when we're when we are incapable of, of sustaining it ourselves because it's a gift of God. Well, and every time we make the sign of the cross, we're remembering that. Uh, maybe the infant can't do that yet, and maybe the, the comatose lady can't do that now. But for us, this is why you know we try to teach people to get into the habit of, yeah. of making the sign of the cross. Yeah. And, and especially when they're on their deathbed or comatose, I like to come and put the cross on their forehead and on their heart. Physically, in that really yeah, hard. Yeah, yeah, right, so they can actually feel it. Yeah. yeah. So we off to verse 35? 35? Sure. The next day, again, John was standing with two of his disciples, and he looked at Jesus as he walked by and said, Behold, the Lamb of God. The disciples heard him say this, and they followed Jesus. Jesus turned and saw them following and said to them, What are you seeking? And they said to him, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? And he said to them, Come, and you will see. So they came and saw where he was staying, and they stayed with him that day, for it was about the tenth hour. One of the two who heard John speak and followed Jesus was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He first found his own brother Simon and said to him, We have found the Messiah, which means Christ. He brought him to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, You are Simon, the son of John. You shall be called Cephas, which means Peter. So the same proclamation... Uh, and, and I think this is really, really, really important. There is no arguing somebody into Christ. There's no showing him the goods. There's no kind of moral argument or philosophical argument um, that creates faith in the heart. It is the simple pointing to Christ and saying, he's the one who bears the sin of the world. Yeah. And that's, that's exactly what we see here with John. And two of his faithful disciples go off. And John lets them. And again, I think this is further proof that John is now recognizing that, that his ministry in the main is, is done. That whatever purpose he had which in gathering disciples for it, he's like, no, go to that guy because he now has the mantle. Um, and, and now he's, he's, he's the thing. And look at what faith does. Faith seeks after Jesus. Teacher, where are you staying? Because that's where we want to stay too. And Christians today may ask the question, teacher, where are you staying? And Jesus points us to the things that we've just been talking about. Baptism, altar, pulpit, pastor's hand forgiving your sins. Church. Church. Where are you staying in this this place? Not because this place is special uh, in itself, but because it is made special by God's presence here, which is true throughout scripture, right? I mean, we... We sometimes think, and I think this is our this hate of the mundanity that we have, right? Mount Mount Sinai wasn't special because of you know it was some special mountain. It was special because God made His presence known there, and it became unspecial as soon as God went away. Right, right, yeah. And then the special place was the ark, and then that became unspecial when God took up residence in the temple. Right. And now that has become unspecial because God has taken up residence in his son. He's tented in his son in the flesh of Jesus Christ. He's ascended into heaven. Lord, where do you remain? I remain in my church through the word and sacrament. Yeah. I mean, how wonderful is that? A church building is is just, and you see how unspecial a church building can be. I mean, you see these pictures of church, churches being turned into liquor stores or even strip clubs. I mean, it, 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 kind of makes me pale to to think about it but it happens and it, you know the, the building itself isn't special except for the fact that that is where god is present uniquely and it's such an effort pastorally 
to help people understand that um, because they're just inundated with this. No, Jesus is floating around my head, right? And I just right. need, and I just need to snatch him. Right. And I can snatch him on the golf course. I can snatch yeah. him while I'm watching my kids play soccer. Right. Well, he's like Wi-Fi. Yeah, I just got to get the signal. Stronger. Yeah, right. Yeah. And, and, and here's the thing. God is at the golf course. Obviously, he's omnipresent, but he hasn't promised to be there mercifully forgiving your sins. So you might want to watch yourself talking to that God, God in that place, because that's not the place he's promised to be forgiving. So, and what do we call when God leaves that place? What do we, what do we call that? Ichabod. Oh, Ichabod. Yeah, right. Yeah. The glory of God has departed. Right. Yeah. Also, we shouldn't, we shouldn't say um, it's still important to have the place reserved. Um, you know, a, a church on a regular basis, I, I hold it. Obviously, this, not everybody can have this. But I think it is immensely valuable to have a set-aside place of worship and to say, worship happens in this place. And it's nice to see parents teaching their kids, right? You know, they, they'll let them run around church otherwise, but when it comes to the sanctuary, they're like, you don't run in here, you don't shout, you don't play, because there's something set aside about this place. Now, I don't, you know, I don't want sanct- this, the sanctuary to be a place of terror for children, but I do want it to be a place of reverent awe, right? And I think instilling that in your children is valuable. Now, you don't just instill it by saying no, you instill it by educating and saying, the reason that we do this is because God is here and he's mercifully forgiving us. And that demands our attention. And it's not a place of play. It's a place of worship. But, you know, the old joke we play at our worship is uh, is a problem for us today. And so this, but the sanctuary is this beautiful place. And, and we, we hold it in reverence even throughout the week because... God is God's presence will be there again. But that is such a rare belief system you have there, Pastor Oak Creek, uh, seeing how so many evangelical churches, they will build a facility that will be multi-use. They don't think in terms of this is a sacred place and it, it's only got one purpose, i.e. the worship of God Almighty. They're trying to stretch the dollar and get more for their money, and we're gonna, you know, we're gonna have dinners in here on Tuesday. We're going to roller skate on Friday. The kids are gonna have uh, pizza parties in the, in here on Saturdays, and we'll turn it back into church on Sunday. They don't they don't think in those terms. And then the other thought is is that beauty it actually costs something more than just a uh, sterile. Four walls and uh, uh, you know, really nice flooring. And what you're both saying is really the tragedy of the screen culture that has even entered into the evangelical Lutheran Church. But think about what that does. I don't know who we were talking to recently was saying that he had filled in in a congregation that had screens one Sunday. Oh no, it was the Wisconsin Synod pastor, Pastor Silo from, uh, from is it Overland Park or Olathe? I'm not sure, but. Uh, apparently, he inherited screens in his congregation, and he'll be consecrating the elements, and the people have their heads turned away from the altar, facing the screen, singing, reading words that they very well know, O Christ, thou Lamb of God, that takest away the sin of the world, have mercy upon us, and not directing their words to where Christ himself is, which is just deeply ironic. It, it just... It just clutters up the whole 
mix. See, if you came to study group, you would know that stuff. Ouch. Ooh. Oh, I'm sorry. I'm too busy delivering the sacrament <laughs> to God's people that day. Sorry. I didn't realize study group was more important than that. <laughs> it's not. Okay. <laughs> what do you make of the seeing here? Right? So John says, behold, look, look, here's the Lamb of God. Um, verse 39, Jesus says, come and see. And they went and saw. What did they see? Uh, I think that's the opening of the eyes of faith. It's not, they didn't see what they expected to see, which was a rabbi, right? It's just a good teacher. I think that what they saw was, oh, this truly is the, the Messiah, which is, which is why Andrew does not come to Simon Peter and say, we found a rabbi. He says, we have found the Christ. And that's clearly what they saw. They saw this truth. And, and I think that's very intriguing um, we can unpack this more as we go further along. I mean, it, my, my question is, you know, how does this, how does this interplay with the calling of the disciples in the synoptics? There's, there's certainly a realization among these people now, but they haven't quite been gathered for us for this specific purpose yet. For apostolic purpose. Yeah. Yeah. You know, that there is, so, I, I mean, just think about all the seeing stuff. The word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen, yeah, his glory, seen his glory, right? John says, behold, or look, the Lamb of God. And what's interesting is that the, these guys follow John's word, right? He says, behold, the Lamb of God. And they, they say, okay, well, we'll just go after him. They first call him rabbi, but then they see that seeing is entirely predicated upon John's proclamation, mm -hmm. which is, I, I think, a very important thing. This, this comes back later. These things are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So it's, it's the word that's doing this, that, that's prompting the proper seeing. You can see all the rabbis you want in the world. You can see all the altars you want in the world. But it's the word accompanying the, the vision that brings the faith. So it's really an enlightenment based upon the revelation. Good, good. I like that. That's a, that's a very good encapsulation. And he's already priming the prompt for the end of the gospel. Blessed are those who believe and have not seen. Uh, he's saying, have not seen with the physical eyes the resurrected Christ, but they believe the, the testimony of the eyewitnesses. Uh, because our, our vision is broader than just flat uh, what I can you know physically see. That isn't to over-spiritualize it because we still are drawn to see Christ, again, with those same eyes of faith in word and sacrament. That's so interesting. And actually, can I just make a comment about that? How you understand what Jesus says to Thomas there entirely depends upon your inflection. Jesus is pronouncing a macarism, a blessing, over Thomas. He's not saying, you're cursed, Thomas, and everybody else yeah. who believes and hasn't seen is blessed. He says, Thomas, have you believed because you have seen? And the answer, he didn't, no one gives the answer. But you know what the answer is? Blessed are you. No. Well, yeah, the answer is no. I haven't believed because I have seen. I, he believes at Christ's word. Yeah. I mean, this is the point. And so seeing, believing is seeing, and seeing is believing in the gospel according to St. John. Yeah. Shall I carry on? 
Sh- sure. Well, what are, what are we going <laughs> to well, do with what are we going to do with Peter here? Yeah, I think maybe maybe it is worth talking about Peter here, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, there actually there are just a couple more things. Just linguistic comments. Isn't it interesting? All of the notices here, where John is saying which is translated teacher, right? Rabbi, which is translated teacher. Kephas, which is translated rock. His audience is obviously a Greek-speaking audience that is not acquainted with the Hebrew scriptures, and yet John is one of the most Hebraic of all of the of all of the writers. His his sentence structure is Hebraic. His 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 whole conceptual world is is highly Hebraic. So this it's a really wonderful text for kind of bridging the gap between the Jewish world and the and the um, and the pagan world. That's one thing. The other thing that's super interesting, rabbi, which is translated teacher. Well, I can guarantee you that when you were in Sunday school, somebody taught you that rabbi means great man. That's all it meant. It didn't mean a rabbi like what we mean as a rabbi today. Bourgeois. It totally means a rabbi like what we mean as a rabbi today. So Jesus, this is important, Jesus is an ordained rabbi. We shouldn't miss that point at all. Uh, there's this idea of sort of primitive Christianity, like Jesus starts this kind of anti-synagogue th- movement, and they sit around the living room, you know, throwing popcorn into their mouth on 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 those beanbag chairs and strumming on a guitar. That's not what's happening at all. When Jesus conducts his ministry, his public ministry, he is doing it as a rabbi in the places where rabbis are expected to conduct their ministry, which is in the synagogue. Now, a lot of, just one last thing, a lot of times those places, they're they're still called this today. They're called a house. So when it says that Jesus went into the house, don't think that he's like walking into the living room and saying, why thank you for taking my jacket. He's walking into a bath, into a, a synagogue. Right, a house of worship. I mean, we right. still have that language sure. today. Yeah. But and, and it goes to what the, the agents of the Pharisees, right? They're concerned about authority. And Jesus, they respect his authority as a rabbi. It's not just, oh, hey, what you say just totally jives with me, man. In fact, they don't like what he's saying, but they respect his authority for saying it as a rabbi. And of course, that's not, that's what invites him to come and read scripture in, in Luke. Yes. Yeah. 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 You can't, it's not just like, Hey, it's open mic night at the synagogue. <laughs> Anybody who wants to come up and read a little scripture, come on up. They're letting people who are trusted to read and interpret scripture come up. That's a rabbi. Indeed. This is very, very important when we talk about the institution of the ministry and for the complaint against the evangelical Lutheran church that, you know, all you guys with your pastors and your collars and your and your vestments and your formal worship, that is so unauthentically Christian hogwash. It's totally authentically Christian. This is just how Jesus did it himself. Do you think there was anything that the early disciples, when they were... Uh, associating with Jesus as followers of this rabbi. Do you think there was anything that they wore that identified them? There is clearly a place, and we're going to come upon it. It's in John 6, I believe, where Jesus goes up to the temple secretly. Maybe it's John 7. Uh, It says, Encrypto. And he starts teaching, and all the people say, How does this guy talk? not knowing grammata, not knowing letters. 
So he, it's, it's kind of like he went up in his yard work clothes to the temple. He wasn't wearing his rabbi clothes, but he was teaching in the synagogue, which is interesting. Yes, how is it that Paul walks into a synagogue anywhere in the, in the stinking Mediterranean and they say, brothers, do you have a word of paraklesis for us? Well, it's because he's dressed like a rabbi. Well, the only reason I bring that up is because when you look at modern-day Judaism, you see different Jewish sects that have different hats. The hat is identifying the rabbi that they follow. That's interesting. I wonder about that with Jesus. I, I don't know. I wouldn't have a clue. That's a fascinating thing. Or was it a color of clothing? Or How interesting. So, you know, I think we had talked about uh, Messianic Jewish sects, that uh, some of them are very Messianic. Some of them are longing for the return of the Messiah. Others are not. You can always tell who's who by, by the hat that they wear. Interesting. Yeah. For what it's worth. Well, it, it's worth a lot because I think, I think these things, um, we, we got to be careful about kind of like reading too much back into the text, but... But understanding that Judaism is a deeply traditional religion, and, and, and in many ways what Jews do today is at least a reflection of what their ancestors did 2,000 years ago, offers really wonderful insights into the text. So should we have somebody read through to the, 40, uh, to the end of the chapter? The next day Jesus decided to go to Galilee. He found Philip and said to him, Follow me. Now Philip was from Bethesda the city of Andrew and Peter. Philip found Nathanael and said to him, We have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nathanael said to him, Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Philip said to him, Come and see. Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him and said of him, Behold, an Israelite indeed, in whom there is no deceit. Nathanael said to him, how do you know me? Jesus answered him, Before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Nathanael answered him, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. Jesus answered him, Because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? You will see greater things than these. And he said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Which again takes us right back to Jacob wrestling with the Lord. Right. I mean, yet another cross-reference back to the patriarchs themselves. Good. So who was Jacob wrestling with? This same guy who saw Nathaniel under the fig tree. Right. The second person. Yeah, yeah. Interestingly here, uh, in the narrative, the seeing goes in a different direction, doesn't it? Um, it had been John seeing, John telling other people to see, um, the first two disciples seeing and um, seeing where he stays. And now, how did Jesus know Nathaniel? He saw him. I saw you, yeah. But it, it still hinges on Philip echoing the words of Jesus himself. Come yes. and see, right. and 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 we have, and and that's why understanding what 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 they're seeing at the in uh, earlier is so critical. What do you say? I want to bring you into the presence of this Jesus, so that you can see the truth of who he is. And in fact, 
he does. And but but I'm going to tell you what that truth is. I'm not going to I'm not just going to plop you in front of Jesus and say, um, you know, let's play 20 questions. You figure out who he is. I'm going to tell you exactly who he is. Yeah, we have found the one. Yeah, right. Yeah, yep. there's there's no there. And and so again, just as much as they were uh, seeing based on the proclamation of the word from John, now they see uh, based on the proclamation of, of Philip, and and so he's able to backfill in the presence of Jesus and say, okay, what he said is true, and 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 my eyes are open, uh, and to the point where he used that language. We have found him right we've had that eureka moment like you know finding that which was not lost but which had not yet been revealed been revealed but now it has been revealed to us right and interestingly in verse 43 right jesus wanted to go out into galilee and he finds he he finds philip right, right. so that so we've got this finding and seeing going in both directions yeah, yeah. and and there's a what I want to argue here, I think, is that is that verses 43 and following are intended for us to understand how the seeking and seeing actually occurs. That it's Jesus who seeks and finds and sees before even you have even thought about it. And he does it through he does this through his word. Interestingly, the witness of these two guys, they connect to the word of God. Right, the one of whom Moses and the prophets wrote, we which is exactly who John said that he wasn't. This is that prophet, capital P. There you go. Isn't that great? Yeah. Yeah. So they're like, we've read Deuteronomy eighteen eighteen, and we've been looking for this guy, and and he includes obviously other prophets there, but that takes us to, are you the Christ and are you the Elijah? The same questions that the Pharisees asked of the baptizer. And now it's getting answered out, even outside of the context of that questioning, right? And, and who is it? it? Not only the Son of God, but we have this narrow identity. It's Jesus uh, of Nazareth, a, very, yeah. a, a concrete human being. But isn't it, isn't it interesting? And, and, and this isn't to, I, I think sometimes in our urgency to, um, to make God the sole agent of our salvation, which absolutely he is, we do kind of strip ourselves down. Oh no! Like you didn't, you didn't hear anything. Like like it's just we almost we we almost sometimes I think in order to to preserve divine monergism, almost make it mystical. Um, no, there is a, there is engagement, and and these people are while Christ has found them and seen them, they also find and see him through the means he has given. It's not their own. It's it's not their agency that does it. It's it's the Holy Spirit, of course. But I think sometimes we 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 play a game where we're like, well, you didn't. Nothing actually really happened, right? And of course, we we live in this reality, and you know, people come to church and hear God's word, and faith grows from that. And I think John is wrestling with those dual realities. There is divine monergism. Only God Himself does it all, but. There is a place to talk about human engagement with that divine monergism that isn't salvific in itself, but he engages us through who we are. He converts your person. He doesn't kill your person, if yeah. you want to talk about it that way. So you keep on doing all the things you did. You keep on willing. You keep on believing. You keep on thinking. You keep on hearing. You keep on talking, right? What God does is he converts all of those things, and now you see, think, believe Christ, 
Amen. And I, and I think that's pivotal. And I think sometimes even in Luther, especially maybe in Lutheran circles, we can whistle past that as if, as if conversion doesn't mean something for us now. Right. Good. I think that's a wonderful point. And I, I find, I do find that frustrating when, when there's such an overemphasis on monergism that, that it leaves out the human subject. Um, of course, there's a danger in the other direction, and that's the yeah. evangelical world where it's all about the human subject and nothing about about God's work. Right. So what do you think of Nathaniel's first comment? I think it's interesting that this is the first time we get an active resistance to the call. John says, there's the lamb, uh, and they, they, they just go without question. And now here in, in kind of a recapitulation of that, we see uh, at least some resistance uh but then god himself overcoming that resistance in him like ah what good there's no way that christ can come from nazareth because that's that's the hickest of hicks towns i mean uh i i've heard said and now correct me if i'm wrong there's there's no prophetic revelation connected to nazareth per se okay yeah and that and that's why and that's why he was so dismissive of it the land of of naphtali right and zebulun But the branch, how can you not see the prophets when they talk about the branch that would come out of the stump of Jesse and how Nazareth is related to the branch? How is Nazareth related to the branch? It's Bethlehem that's related to the branch, and he didn't know about Bethlehem. No, Nazareth is related to the branch. What is Nazareth in Hebrew? What does it mean? I think it means the branch. Hmm. That's, That's interesting. I don't. I don't. I mean, I don't want to get too lost in the weeds here. He obviously is very dismissive of coming from Carbondale, <laughs> right? But I. But I, I mean, I hear what you're saying regarding him being dismissive. But what does the Lord say about him? So he he has no cites, deceit in him, right? He just he cites a prophecy about the messianic time. So this is Zephaniah three thirteen. I'll start at verse twelve. Uh, but I will leave in your midst a people humble and lowly. They shall seek refuge in the name of the Lord, those who are left in Israel. They shall do no injustice and speak no lies, nor shall there be found in their mouth a deceitful tongue. For they shall graze and lie down, and none shall make them afraid. So, I mean, one possibility here, and, and I think because we read the scriptures in church, I don't know that we always hear the cheek in in some of the stuff that's in the scriptures, that the sarcasm and right. or the like the inside joke. Could it be entirely different? Like, like we all know what the inside joke is. Nothing good is going to come out of Nazareth. But, of course, we know. I don't know. I, I'm just throwing it out there. And I, I don't want to. Well, that's one of the one, wonderful things about the mystery of understanding the scriptures. Yeah. We can also get in over our heads. Right? Sure. Yeah. And it's okay to say, there's some mysterious stuff going on here that I haven't fully connected the dots on. It doesn't change the, the underlying truth without sometimes under fully understanding the details of the of the conversation happening we obviously see the outcome of it that in recognizing Nathaniel sitting under the fig tree you now there's a lot of hay to be made about fig trees in scripture um, we uh, we don't teach it in Sunday school so I think a lot of people don't know about it but you know the fig tree is kind of this uh, this symbol of peace and prosperity and, and really a symbol of God's kingdom. Now, does the fact that he saw 
saw him sitting under that fig tree bring all of that to mind? Yes. Could it also have just been him saying, I, I knew that previously you were sitting under a fig tree and that that was enough, right? And it seems like such a small thing, but I find that small things do bring people to faith too. I don't I don't know how much hay to make about that that fig tree. So uh, can we talk about a problem passage here, uh, verse 45, where people can easily get tripped up. Philip finds Nathanael and he says to him, we have found the one of whom Moses wrote in the law and the prophets, Jesus, the son of Joseph, the one from Nazareth. Um, that word son of Joseph, right? So, so one indictment, obviously, would be, well, you know, really, this is the virgin's son, and Joseph is his dad. This is how he's known. Well, he, he was known this way. But the word in Greek here is, is huios, um, and a huios is a legal child. It's not, it's not the fruit of your loins, necessarily. It can be the fruit of your loins, but it doesn't necessarily have to be the fruit of your loins. And the, the word is well chosen, and so I just want to point that out. By the end of this thing, the son of Joseph goes to the son of God. Isn't that cool? Yeah. Nazareth may come from the Hebrew netzir, which means branch or shoot. May. See, I knew you were going to say that because you're like, I don't want to own uh, that I'm wrong here, uh, so I'll just uh, uh, grab hold of anything. It's okay. It's okay. It's cognitive dissonance. Everybody has it. Uh, I want to go back to the fig tree for a second because when Jesus says, I saw you, I don't see this, as you've been saying many times uh, before, as something mystic. I think Jesus saw him just like I see the neighbor walk outside and take his trash. I think he saw him. And when he's under the fig tree, it's nothing dramatic, I think, uh, as a devout Jew, he would have his devotions, morning and evening prayer, and he probably went to a specific place to have morning and evening prayer. All pious Jews still do this today. I think Jesus saw him having his devotions, we would say. And that's why I love, now I'm pushing on it a little bit, uh, when I say that when Jesus says to him, about uh, the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man in that uh, this reference to Jacob. I would love to think that the pericope for that day or the day prior, Nathaniel read, and he's thinking about that text, and Jacob wrestling with this angel. And the Lord, the Lord would have read the exact same text in his devotion. So but, I, I, don't, I don't take it as being so supernatural. Take it a little bit more natural. Well, I mean, I only would say that it, it feels like he came to Jesus from a little distance. Come and see, and when Jesus saw them coming. I mean, it wasn't like Jesus was just like... No, he says, I saw you when you were under the fig tree. Right, but it was... Uh, he came to Jesus from a distance. Um, and I, I think it's... I mean, I think it's interesting. I mean, it's, it's, it's almost the same language as the the father and the prodigal son seeing him far off and and running to him um again i i mean i think what we're trying to find an answer to is how does jesus seeing him under a fig tree elicit such a confession of faith it it and and 
we don't have a concrete answer to it. So we're, you know, you have, you have your view on it, which is, which is fine. Uh, I have my view on it and, you know, and, and what we're trying to do is come to an answer to a question and, and maybe it's simpler than that. The, he, he encounters Jesus. Uh, it's not necessarily this, this insight that he has that brings him there. It's this, it's just this, this truth of, okay, this is the Christ as he had been told. And now he's, he's coming to faith through it. I mean, I, I, again, there's, you can just try to make all kinds of hay. Oh, he was talking about the prophetic truth of the fig tree, and that made me aware. Oh, he saw me doing my devotions, um, and that made me aware. I'd, I want to backpedal just a second, though. Um, the pericope wasn't about Joseph wrestling with God. The pericope would have been G, J, uh, Jacob's dream, right? Not it, it happens in the same place, but right. but it's the dream that would have been more directly referenced here. Correct. The the ziggurat. Correct. Okay, I just wanted I wanted to be clear. Um, it's the whole pericope. So so we've got the the citation, and the citation brings in the whole story, right? Which it, was which is typical typical ancient citation method. Sure, sure. I just I've always kind of had it as uh, in the dream he sees. Uh, he sees the son of man. He sees this, this, this man figure at the top of the ladder, at the top of the ziggurat, whatever it is. Pastor Kearns has got a read on this. That's really good. Oh, I've kind of, the details are fuzzy, but it's, it's not at the top of the ladder. It's not at the top of the ladder. He is, he is on earth. I mean, he is over him. Jacob is obviously in a prone position laying down he is over top of him. He is a lot closer than uh, than you are when you go and take stuff up in the uh, pull down staircase and yell up to somebody in the attic. Mm-hmm. I mean, and, and maybe so. I I've always taken it as here is the pre incarnate Christ in his in his heavenly throne, but now here is the descended from heaven incarnate Son of Man, and of course. But of course, what is the what is the the ladder now that is being descended? It's the cross. He dreamed, and behold, there was a ladder set on the earth, and the top of it reached to heaven. And behold, the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. And behold, the Lord of God stood above it, uh, or beside him. It could be either one. Right. Mm-hmm. Okay. Beside him, like he is a lot closer than. Well, high well, and lifted up. Well, and certainly it says, "Behold, I am with you and will keep you wherever you go." And so, I, yeah, I mean, I, I get it. Um, and we know that he is wrestling with him. Well, and and maybe and maybe we're playing a semantic game. I just read a reading. No, recently. I think it's a. I think it's a. I think it's a salient point. Well, I think like we say, uh, the we'll get into this in in chapter three: the birth from above and the birth of uh, born again. Could it be kind of? holding both of those truths in tension in the same way that we, we, we confess that Jesus is at the right hand of the Father, uh, high up, but also he is beside us in his sacrament, right? He is, he is both things at the same time. And so maybe that's, uh, maybe that's the, the key for us to understand this, right? I am the all-powerful God, but I'm also intimately close with you. 
um, not in just some spiritual way, but in this grounded, uh, truthful way, right? I mean, uh, it wasn't like uh, Joseph was, I'm sorry, it wasn't like Jacob was uncircumcised, right? He was circumcised into the promise. He had this uh, sacramental promise upon him. I just, I've, you know, the idea of this re-evocation of the latter is critical. And when, when, when does he see this? This has, this is, this is a picture of the cross, right? You will, you will see, not you have seen, not you have heard, but you will see angels ascending and descending upon the Son of Man. And I think that is an, an evocation of the cross. For finally, the cross is the place where heaven and earth are fully and completely bridged, right? And, and again, you do see depictions of the cross with the, with the placard, the crossbar, and then the, the little footstand, and it is evocative of a ladder in that way. And I think that that is useful for helping to understand what he's referring to in this text. Good, and, and, and actually, if I can just make a, a, a connection with that, uh, John 3.13, no one has ascended into heaven except for the one who has descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And just as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, thus also must the Son of Man be lifted up. And so the, the, the connection with this ascending and descending, which is a clear verbal link back to the, the very end of chapter 1, occurs here in connection with the crucifixion and death of Jesus. And not to deny anything you said, Pastor Oakry, but you know why in the Greek Orthodox symbol of that, that cross with the placard at the top and the, the piece at the bottom that's crooked, do you know what that crooked piece means? I have no idea. It's supposed to represent uh, the one who was in paradise when he died, as opposed to the other thief on the other side who did not believe. Hmm. Oh, so it's pointing at one and, and oh, well, that's interesting. That's interesting. Um, uh. but, then, but then there's also, I think, important for us to understand, because, I mean, there has to be a pushback. I, I heard someone make this reference uh, not too long ago in like a YouTube video or something, right? We got to keep climbing Jacob's ladder. And it is so critical for us to understand that the ladder is there for God, not for us. Amen. <laughs> and uh, we we don't climb. It, us climbing Jacob's ladder is more futile than when you actually try to do it at the carnival, right? And that that it's rigged so that you can't actually do it. <laughs> and and everybody's like, oh, but I can, right? And it's like, no, it's not there for you, especially after like two or three beers. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Uh, Jesus is the one who descends and ascends, and he's and and, and it is in him that we now ascend. Uh, we can we don't climb it ourselves. We don't climb it with his help. He's not sitting there at the side going, "Oh, you can do it. Oh, you'll do it next time, buddy. Don't worry." Right? He's not. He's not our rah rah life coach. He's the one who literally has come down and gone back up. Well, unfortunately, that that is a. Uh, persistent uh, thought, isn't it? Not just in our modern evangelical world, but uh, I'm recalling like images, icons that uh, carry this exact same teaching uh, embodied just in the artwork of of climbing the ladder to to God. Right, and and we have to be real clear. This is you know when we say that there are only two religions in the world, finally and fully. This is the place where you understand that. There are every religion in the world, other than the true religion, Christianity says, 
you have to make it up to God, right? This is the Tower of Babel. It's all of those things. And and it's not always works. Sometimes it's sitting on a mountaintop going, ohm, right? I'm going to clear my mind and that's going to connect me to God. But I'm the one doing it. I'm going to feel my way to God. I'm going to think my way to God. I'm going to work my way to God. Everyone does this. This is what sin has done to us. And all of our religions are slave to that notion because finally it is what sin, it is the most foundational thing that sin has done to us. It's convinced us that we have to and can make ourselves worthy. And Christianity comes and kicks in the door and says, no, you are awful. And so God has to intervene on your behalf. And it's utterly offensive to the religion of the world. It's utterly offensive to our minds to say, you're a helpless little baby and you think and you think that you can ascend to God. You're just there waving your arms and accomplishing nothing. And in my complete merciful love, this is this is the foundational idea of grace to me. I saw how helpless and pathetic, but also how arrogant and hateful you were towards me, even in your in your helplessness. And I loved you enough. In fact, I loved you completely. <laughs> to come down and save you from yourself. And that's why, I mean, that's why I'm a Christian, right? I mean, that because that truth is so foundational to everything. There's no other religion in the world that has that. I mean, there's just none. And so to act like we're just one religion among a, a plethora is just a foolish lie that, that you know, the atheists and the, the sinful world tells itself to to feel good about. Indeed. And, and uh Unfortunately, even Christianity itself can become infected with that. This is what decision theology is all about. Um, it's what uh, the uh, skinny jeans, try harder, try more uh, theology is all about. It's, well, you forgot it's about the soy latte. The soy latte theology. It's it's about it's the uh, it's the gospel in the rearview mirror theology uh, that is just so predominant. It's the anti-sacramental theology that despises that God must come to feed me, to keep me in, in the faith. I can do it on my own. Yeah. To change the metaphor from a ladder to a rope, you're just climbing a rope of sand. Yeah, to hang yourself. Ooh, wow. a rope of sand. That would be a tough one to climb. <laughs> but I can do it. Yeah, <laughs> try again. <laughs> yeah. Well, on that note, shall we uh, shall we uh, ring out here? And yeah. uh, we'll pick it up with uh, Chapter 2 and hopefully complete Chapter 2 in our next session. You've been listening to the Pluck Chicken Podcast with your hosts, Pastors John Bruss and Devin Kern. To discover more, go to thepluckedchicken.com or stjohnlcmstopeka.org.